We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome this evening. It's good to see you guys way up from Howell here. Great. And everybody, all of you, it's good to see you. <laughs> and those of you that are online tonight, welcome. Um, maybe you haven't watched a service online or you're this is your first Good Friday service watching online. We welcome you tonight to, uh, to our service. Um, this is our 41st Good Friday service and our 12th held in the evening. Before this, we would always have them at the noon hour, and now we have them at 7 o'clock. It makes it a little easier, I think, to uh, get out uh, to the service. Our purpose this evening is to gratefully worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, gave himself, the Son of God, as we remember his one-time historical death for our sins. By that death, he provided the one and the only way of salvation for mankind by conquering sin and death and providing for us eternal life. He has indeed the keys of death and of Hades. He is the one who was dead and now is alive forevermore. Of course, we remember his death in a special way this uh, this evening. Although, let me emphasize that I've mentioned before, always we don't worship the day. We don't get special uh, merit or grace from being here this evening or participating online. Uh, but we uh, do this because we want to be here to worship God. We're not uh, just checking off our list and saying, well, I've done my Christmas and Easter responsibilities. You know, the so-called Christer uh, Christian. Um, this is not a day of a special day of atonement. Our atonement was done one day in all of history back when Jesus died. Not, not every day of, uh, not, or not every uh, you know, year, one day every year, but one time in all of history. Jesus is not right now dead, is he? That's right. Although we remember his death as a special part of the work of his life on the earth. He's very much alive, but we simply remember his once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. We want to worship God in response to his magnanimity toward us. He has been so kind. There was one, as we might say, bad Friday, but there are many good Fridays. Today is a good Friday because I did not have to be crucified, it's a Good Friday. Because I did not have to die for my sin, it's a Good Friday. You did not have to die for your sin or be crucified or be eternally lost, so it's a Good Friday, isn't it? Indeed, it is. The record of the scriptures and history is clear. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph, and the Son of God, grieved in the Garden of Gethsemane, was betrayed by Judas, arrested, abandoned by his disciples, beaten by his captors, unjustly tried in a kangaroo court, 
full of false accusations and lies, condemned, delivered to the Gentiles, tried twice before Pilate, examined by Herod, mocked by Herod's soldiers, scourged, mocked again, forced to carry his cross beam, but was unable because of extreme physical trauma. As many of you know, even the uh, scourging that he received could kill a man, just the scourging alone. He was crucified, that is, he was hung on a cross by Roman soldiers around 9 a.m. on Friday morning, hung there through the morning, 10 o'clock, 11, noon. The earth grew dark, 1, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and he expired. Crying out to God, into your hands I commend my spirit, and it is finished. As he hung there, he was mocked by fellow prisoners. One of the crosses was the cross of rejection, and the other was the cross of reception. In the middle stood the cross of redemption. He was taunted and blasphemed by the religious leaders and crowds of passers-by. He was shrouded in darkness as he hung on the cross in the afternoon as the wrath of God was poured out upon him and the sun hid its face from the Son of God. He was buried before 6 p.m. or thereabouts in a rock tomb. And this occurred those many years ago in our own time zone between 2 a.m. and 11 a.m. in the morning since they are seven hours ahead of us. No matter the exact time, as we said, we don't worship a day or a time. We worship a Savior who did something unique and powerful. At this hour, those many years ago outside of Jerusalem, our Lord was sealed in a tomb, cold, lifeless, broken in body, absent in spirit. But tonight we're going to talk for just a few moments about what he was busy doing while he was in that state. You might not have thought about that much before, but we will this evening. He he had suffered the awful consequences of sin. He had dealt with sin, but he remained dead for a significant amount of time beyond uh, making it rather beyond a shadow of a doubt that he in fact did die. He also had to remain in that state of death caused by taking on the sins of the world for the specified time to fulfill the sign of Jonah. For three days and three nights, he said, the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. Amen. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take my Bible and read from Matthew, or sorry, from Mark, rather, Mark chapter 15. And we will have a special music after this reading of scripture, and that will be by our son John. But we'll first read in Mark chapter 15. The scripture says, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. 
Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that they should rather release, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. I just pause in the reading to say those men who did that are going to have a real rude awakening when they stand before the king of kings at the judgment. Verse 21, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, and he did not take it. That was an, that was an anesthetic, I guess you would call it, a painkiller. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. We'll pause their reading right there and invite John to come and share with us the hymn that he's got prepared. That's 289. If you want to follow along, I would encourage you to do that. Follow along with the words of this uh, very thoughtful hymn regarding our Lord's death on our behalf. Hymn that, that's going to be hymn 289, O Sacred Head. <laughs> Thank you. 
all set back there? All right, good. Thank you, John. Thank you for that. That's very good and very encouraging. <clears throat> Let's continue our scripture reading in uh, Mark chapter 15, please. We'll pick right up where we left off. <clears throat> After this, we'll uh, then have another hymn that we'll sing together. Mark 15, starting again in verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Some have tried to suggest that there's a natural ex explanation for this. I tend to doubt that. Of course, God could providentially arrange for a, a natural event like a, an eclipse or something, but that typically wouldn't last for three hours, would it? So we have to recognize that there's something special going on here. And at the ninth hour, verse 34 says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he had cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Hmm. I noticed this about Joseph of Arimathea. He was in kind of a, kind of a difficult spot, wasn't he? As a council member prominent council member, but he was different than the others because it says he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. I think a lot of those council members got into the political aspect of things. They got into the worldly aspect of things. They weren't waiting for the kingdom of God. But Joseph was, Nicodemus was too, as we find out later on. He was interested in these matters and uh, so we're very grateful for them, but I, I bring that note to our attention. Maybe you haven't read it like that before, but just think, are you, like Joseph of Arimathea, are you waiting for the kingdom of God? Yes, sir. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. 
If you couldn't hear all of that, uh, Steve was just reflecting on the tremendous, how can we say, pain, difficulty between the father and the son at that time. And uh, it is extremely difficult to try to uh, put words to that. Um, But we know there are two things going on. Obviously, the eternal fellowship of the father and the son and the deity of the son uh, cannot be uh, set aside, but at the same time, the punishment due that the sin of the world was being poured out in God's wrath upon his own son himself, in a sense, not the father himself, but the son. And uh, you you just marvel at how that worked. And when the Lord cried, uh, why have you forsaken me? I think that he was really feeling that forsakenness. We might also, as the psalmist in Psalm 22 cry out, why have you forsaken me? But we ought to know, as the psalmist did by the end of the psalm, that ultimately God does not forsake his own. He may seem to for a while, and in fact, in this case, he may very heavily seem to, but God the Father knew that the end of this was not that forsakenness. It was a glorious resurrection. So uh, he had... uh, he had the difficult, if we could say anthropomorphically, the difficult feeling of being as closely related as one could be to another and yet at the same time having to punish sin. And I'm sure some of you fathers have had that grief of having to know I, I have to punish my son or my grandson or whatever for what he's done, but I, I kind of hate to do it too, you know? Yeah. So, right now I'd like to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, please, and verse number 18. We're going to do some more learning from Scripture here, perhaps some review, perhaps some new to you, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. 1 Peter three eighteen to 20, I'm going to talk about the death of Christ and his preaching. The death of Christ and his preaching. Jesus proclaimed victory over sin to those gone before and to us. Just a little note uh, before we get into it. If you look at that last segment there of verse 20, where it says that eight souls were saved through water, I don't want you to be confused about that. Many people do get confused about it. Um, Think about the water of the flood judgment. Was it a good thing or a bad thing? The water was bad. The water was the instrument of judgment. It was not the instrument of salvation. What was the instrument of salvation? 
the ark, the ark. So don't make water baptism into some kind of strange thing that, you know, you go into the water and your sins are washed away. No, water is a sign of judgment. It's not a sign of salvation here. And so I just encourage you to keep that in your mind, that uh, the water was the tool of judgment. And in fact, if you think about the water of baptism, you can think about it that way. Going down into the water pictures what? Your death. (laughs) Yeah. It's not washing from sin. (laughs) It's a picture of your death. Coming up out of the water is a picture of your new life in Christ. So we first start with the death of Christ for sinners in verse 18, where it says that Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And I just want to ask a few questions about this verse and then uh, kind of do the same thing again for the next portion. First of all, who suffered? Well, it was the Christ suffered. And how is he described? Well, it says here he's the just for the unjust. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the perfect God-man, God the Son, the sinless Lamb, the good teacher. Remember that? Why do you call me good? Yes, he was a good teacher. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one who suffered. He is the one. What does this suffering mean? It, It meant physical agony physical agony, and it meant spiritual darkness, spiritual darkness, a, a, a darkness that he had never known before in his life. Can you imagine that? Never having been outside of the realm of perfect communion and fellowship with God the Father. Yes, for our sins. This spiritual darkness was symbolized by the atmospheric darkness that afternoon from noon to three, The centurion, the soldiers who were there attending to this crucifixion must have thought, this is very strange. This has never happened to us before. When this man was hung upon the cross, they had to make the correlation uh, to him. Everybody knew that he was put there for envy and that he was a representative in effect of the Jewish nation with the title over him, the king of the Jews. This is a very odd situation. The suffering meant physical agony and spiritual darkness. When did he suffer? Well, I'm not talking about a calendar date, although it was around this time of the year, probably on a Friday, around 30 A.D. But the point of the question, when did he suffer, is really this. The text tells us Christ also suffered once for sins, once for sins. There is only one offering for sin forever. He suffered one time for all time for the potential, at least, benefit of all people. There is no other sacrifice for sin. If you sin willfully, Hebrews 10.26 says, that is disregarding the sacrifice of Christ, there is no other sacrifice for sin. There's nothing else that we have to offer to somebody who treats the Son of God as a common thing. Why did he suffer? Why did he suffer? Well, there are two reasons in this text. The one is from the context prior. And if you look back at, say, verse um, 17, just to keep it simple, for it says here, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In this segment of the text, Peter is encouraging the disciples, the scattered uh, disciples of the diaspora to 
continue to live for the Lord despite the suffering that they're facing. And he says, look, if you suffer for doing wrong, well, you got what you deserve. You got it coming. But if you're suffering for doing good, that is good and pleasing in the sight of God. And he then proceeds to give the ultimate example of suffering for doing good. If Jesus can suffer for doing good like he did, even to the point of death, guess what? You can also suffer, and you may likely do so, for doing good. It's happened ever since for centuries throughout world history that God's people suffer for doing good. Most recently nearby to us, even just trying to meet together as a church has caused some people to go to jail uh, and uh, many worse things throughout the globe. Christ suffered as an illustration that suffering from doing good is sometimes the will of God. His situation is an example for us when we suffer for doing good. It may well happen to us as well, for it happened to the only perfect human being who ever lived. Now, of course, it makes, you know, it makes sense that people suffer for doing evil because they deserve that punishment, but God's people sometimes suffer for doing good. But then the second reason or answer to my question, why did Christ suffer, is given right in the verse. It says that he suffered once for sins. There's the reason. There's the, the, the reason why he suffered. In order to satisfy the wrath of God against our rebellion, against our self-autonomy, our pride, he died for our evil, for our sins of murder, lying, immorality, hatred, ungratefulness, and all other kinds of sin whereby God is not honored by humanity. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 tells us that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You remember that. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Isaiah tells us we're like sheep that have strayed off from the right way, and Christ effectively has gone off and chased after us to bring us back to where we should be. Instead of punishing us, God turned the rod of His wrath on the Son. Let me read to you from the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number 7, where it says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Let me read uh, the fulfillment of that in Matthew 26, verse 31. Um, it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So reason number two, Christ suffered not only for as an example for those who suffer for doing good, but also and primarily for sins. Now, how did Christ suffer? How did he suffer? Well, he suffered as a substitute. The just, we said, for the unjust. Okay, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. This is a great verse for you to commit to memory. You can share this verse with people that you encounter. It's kind of a one-verse summary of the, of the New Testament, a one-verse summary of the gospel, if you will. 
He suffered as a substitute, the just in place of the unjust. He had no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. He experienced no sin. He was perfectly holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was therefore outfitted to be a perfect sacrifice for us. I want you to be perfectly clear in your mind that the orthodox doctrine of Christianity is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. There are many Christians so-called out there who don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. They have no atonement. They have no cleansing for their sins if they have no substitute. If they have no one who would stand in and take the wrath of God on their behalf, then they will not be saved. It's a violent and bloody business for sure, but it is true, and we cannot shrink back from the reality that the wages of sin is death, and the only way to avoid the full measure of death, including the second death, is to have that death voluntarily taken by another who is qualified to take it. We looked at why Christ suffered and how he suffered and when and all of that. What about the purpose of it, the outcome, the end of it? Look at the verse. It tells us, He suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. That, there's the key word, connecting the idea to why he suffered. What's the outcome that intended? Well, that he might bring us to God. That he might reconcile us to God. You know, any idea that we were with God and we just kind of walked away a little bit and then now we have to come back, that's not right. We never were with Him. We were straight, we went astray from the womb, speaking lies. We were uh, children of wrath, even as the others. Christ died to reconcile us to God. His death was not exemplary merely, uh, was not a demonstration of God's anger at sin uh, to kind of try to scare us out of sinning. It was uh, not an impersonal, abstract sacrifice. He died in order to bring individuals to the true God. People who were not in good standing with God, his intention was to bring them into good standing with God. And he did accomplish that. Thank God that he accomplished that. Thank God for that. The end of the suffering that he suffered for us was death. Notice that. He He suffered that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. This is always often on a Good Friday what just uh, kind of gets me. You know, I don't know if you thought about Good Friday things today, but if you do that at all, perhaps it will put you in a bit of a sour mood like it did me to think about death and about suffering, and about sin, and about all of that. It doesn't undercut or destroy the joy that we have in, in our hearts, but we recognize, I think, I hope you recognize, I recognize that, boy, we are sinners, and we deserve what he got, and he got what we deserved. Thank God. All the way to death he went, even the death of a cross, mocking, hanging up there, indecently exposed, brutalized, savaged. And then to have your own father turn his back, in effect, to pour out his wrath, he died. Put to death in the flesh, 
Thankfully, the verse ends with this glorious statement that he was made alive. Made alive in the Spirit. Made alive. He was raised by God the Father. And I'll say on Sunday morning in the early service from Romans chapter 1 that there are 12, 15 verses in the Scriptures that say that God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And he did something with that resurrection that we'll look at on Sunday morning. Just a little preview, okay, an advertisement. You come in here. It's good. It's going to be good. Uh, and pray for me as I continue studying because I'm not quite done yet with Sunday morning. And it's just a wonderful, uh, wonderful material, all of this, just to think about what to share with you all. Amen. Amen, brother. Amen. Now, something, uh, something different to bring to your attention in a few minutes we have remaining tonight is we've talked about now the death of Christ. Let's think about the preaching of Christ to sinners, the preaching of Christ to sinners. Maybe you have just kind of been so, as I have over many years, bowled over by the death of Christ. Like, it's so dark. It's so bad. It's so unfair what happened to him in a human sense. It's so tremendous and that you've forgotten to ask yourself one important question. What happened between his death and his resurrection? What happened between his death and his resurrection? He's there. Well, what about Friday night and Saturday and Saturday night and early Sunday morning? You might have wondered what Jesus did there in the realm of the dead while he was in that state. Now, I trust you already know that when somebody dies, their spirit is not asleep. It's not unconscious. The same is the case for the spirit of Jesus after his death on the cross. I think maybe we've thought about the death of Jesus like, you know, he died and the lights went out. Pause, nothing else happened until Sunday morning, suddenly he pops out of the grave. There's something else that happened, I believe, in accordance with this text. I'm going to show you that far from being asleep, Christ actually preached after he died. Verse 19 has the verb preach as its only and main verb. Did I say that? Let me see. Let's look at verse 19. By whom it says he also went. I overstated the case. I knew I was going to do that because I noticed that when I was studying. He went, which is a secondary idea, but it actually chronologically came first. But the main idea is that he preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. We get into an explanation of who they are, and then we talk about the rest of the narrative about the flood. But listen to this. Luther found that these verses were confusing in his commentary on Peter and Jude in the volume that I had looked at before, page 166, he writes this, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. But we think we can, I think, make some headway in understanding it simply by carefully looking at the text. First of all, let's ask some questions just like we did in the prior verse. With whose help did Christ preach? With whose help did he preach? Well, it says at the beginning of the verse, by whom? By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What does the whom refer back to? 
I think the Holy Spirit, the end of verse 18, by the power of the Holy Spirit, referring to the Spirit at the end of verse 18, the Spirit of God accompanied and ministered in and through Jesus, who himself, you might recall, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 1 says that at one point he was full of the Spirit and he was driven into the wilderness to face the temptations that were offered against him by the devil. He offered himself through the eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9.14. He was made alive by the Spirit, as we just read in 1 Peter 3.18. So with that work somehow of the Holy Spirit, I don't know exactly how, don't ask me that question, I don't know the, the, the ins and outs of all that, but we can say what the text of Scripture says. Where did he preach? Where did he preach? Well, it says he went. And then it says he preached to these spirits in prison. Since these are spirits, he did not find them in a local jail or prison house, in a local human prison. He had to be in the spirit realm to go and speak to these spirit prisoners. Since he himself was dead, it seems that it was a suitable way for him to be able to do that. Um, I'll mention something of maybe if I have time at the end, some of the alternative viewpoints of this passage, but it seems logical that he was in that realm, the realm of the dead, that he would speak with those people that were there or could do so. Uh, the God of creation was making a visit, I think, to the underworld or the world of the dead. And that must have been a very rare occurrence, maybe only one time ever that he did that. But he went there. Now, it's a, I ask the next question, when did he preach? By whom the Spirit? Where in, in this prison where he went? He, it, I mean, it says he went somewhere, so he, he had to go. He wasn't in the tomb. His spirit was beyond the tomb. It was, the, tomb was, the tomb in the Old Testament way of thinking was the entry into the underworld of the world of the dead. The grave was the entry into Sheol or paradise, depending on if you were a person that was a person of God or, or not. But now we ask the question, when did he preach? Well, it appears to me that he did this after his death and before his resurrection, which is common among various understandings of the passage. And this is why I elected to preach on this topic for Good Friday service. Maybe seems a little strange to focus on this section of Scripture, yet it does provide for us a reasonable explanation of what the Lord was doing while he was dead. While he was dead. You know, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that tells us, in Jesus' own words, that you know the spirits of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive, and they are before God. And they're not, they're not in soul sleep. They're not an unconscious existence. They're not lights out, nothing else happening. They have a life beyond physical death. Just as every one of us who, when we die, will have a life beyond physical death in one place or the other, of course. Well, now, let's get back to our, our, our thoughts. So we're focusing on this idea, this explanation of what he was doing while he was in the grave, after he was buried. Then what? What was he up to in his spirit during those many hours that his body lay cold in the grave? We don't think or talk about that very much, but it appears that Christ was doing something very significant. So we then ask the question, to whom did he preach? To whom? Well, the text tells us he preached his spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? Some say they're angelic spirits. Um, 
you know, when you say the word spirit, or somebody says the word, you know, the spirit world or whatever, you probably think of either, if you're secular, you think of ghosts, or if you're, uh, you know, a Christian, you think of angels, demons, you know, fallen uh, angels, spirits of that sort. And so you might think, well, he's preaching to, you know, angelic spirits. Uh, some of these angelic spirits were disobedient and are in chains and deep darkness, the Bible elsewhere tells us, awaiting their day of judgment. But I doubt that uh, in this case because the focus of Peter is on those who were what? Disobedient during the days of Noah. And only eight of them were saved. So I think he's talking about humans here, humans who passed away. And after all, what happens when a human person dies? Their spirit leaves their body. What is a human? A human is a physical body, a material body, with an immaterial spirit. God made Adam's body out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him the... That's right, that's the spirit. And he became a what? A living soul. Became a living soul. So we confuse soul and spirit, but I don't think we really have to do that. We can understand sometimes when people say soul or sometimes when they say spirit, they really mean the immaterial part of the person who leaves the, leaves the building and goes to be in heaven or to be in Hades when they die. And so we have spirits here, I think, who are human spirits. Universally minus eight. They rejected the preaching of Noah, a preacher of righteousness during his own day. They rejected the work of the Spirit of God and the conscience. The Bible says in Genesis 6 that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. God said, I'm only going to strive with these people for another 120 years, meaning that's the time period that Noah had to finish the ark project, and then it was going to be lights out, as it were. It was going to be judgment. It was going to be death and destruction for those that rejected God and his message. The focus is on humans. And besides this, God does not exercise saving patience toward angels. Did you know that? In Hebrews 2.16, it tells us he doesn't even have a program of salvation for angels. He doesn't come to aid the angels. He came to aid the seed of Adam and Abraham. These people were disobedient during Noah's time while he preached. Second Peter 2 tells us he was that preacher of righteousness. Their bodies were buried in the great flood and their spirits live on in Hades. They are imprisoned there because they cannot cross out of that place. You recognize that. Once somebody goes to Hades, the Bible testifies in Luke 16 that there's a great chasm fixed between them and paradise. And, uh, and Abraham said, look, you cannot go from or come from there to here. You cannot cross that great divide. There is no going to purgatory and coming out again. If you go to the hot place, you're staying in the hot place. Okay, So avoid that altogether by coming to Christ now and repenting of your sins now. These people are imprisoned there because they were sinners who were wicked and did not repent of their sin. Now, what message did Christ preach to them? Well, the text doesn't tell us specifically, but we can make some educated guesses or educated Mm, extrapolations, I'd rather say, not guesses, because it seems natural that the message of the death of Christ for sinners and his victory over death would be the topic of conversation. 
Christ just died for sin and sinners, and he said, it is finished. What else is he going to be talking about? This is the pinnacle event in the spiritual world for all of eternity. He commended his spirit into the Father's hands, an ultimate expression of trust. He said, it is finished. The judgment of death was about to be completed because Jesus was about to rise from the dead. Basically, what I think is he's saying, it's finished. The salvation plan of God is executed, it's done, it's implemented, it's fully realized. God's way of salvation is now operable. It's publicized for the world, and and I think he was publicizing it for the underworld. And he was basically saying to those folks, judgment is complete, and there is no other way. Death has been conquered, and all those in me will conquer it with me. Well, there should be more I should say about that. Um, Let me conclude. What's What's the point? Well, one implication I draw out of this is that Jesus has addressed all of humanity, both living and dead, with his work. Those alive at the time of his death and beyond that, including us today, know about the death of Christ, that he died for sinners, once the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We have an opportunity to respond. Those who died during the wicked time of Noah know their judgment is sealed, like all others of unbelief during Old Testament times. They know that because he went and told them. He preached it to them. This wasn't a preaching of of inviting them to a second chance of salvation or or anything like that, it was, it was simply saying, the, the deal's done. I've conquered death. To those who rejected God during the time of Noah, Christ's message was a message of judgment. But to those who are alive right now today, it is a message of provision, the provision of salvation, and if rejected, certain future judgment. Christ died for sinners, just like all of us, the perfect lamb for sinful people in order to bring us to God. He died and then rose again from the dead. In between his death and resurrection, he made a proclamation of victory over sin and death, that victory which we can share with him if we turn from sin and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. Christ's work and message is a message to you as an individual and to the world of individuals who wonder what Good Friday is all about. What are you going to do with this? Are you so happy from, you know, with your life apart from Jesus that you are going to just simply await the Lord's proclamation of judgment like the people in prison found out? Or will you believe in him now so that your sins can be placed into him and judged kind of retroactively back on that day when he once died for sinners to bring us to God? the just for the unjust, with the purpose of reconciling us to our Creator. We don't have time tonight to look at the more academic aspect of this and the different views that people take on it, but that's my understanding of what happened Friday night and Saturday as the Lord was there in the grave in His body, but He was with the spirits in prison telling them about what He had accomplished And I think, too, perhaps in the overhearing ears of the principalities and powers whom he had just made a show of triumphing over them in it because it was not possible that death could hold him. 
It was inevitable at that point he had accomplished the work of God and he was shortly to, to burst forth from the grave and to be the first fruits of those who slept. We will think more about that on Sunday, though. Today we reflect on Good Friday. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the message of the Word of God in First Peter that our Savior died for us to bring us to you. And, oh, our God, I pray that tonight we've drawn just a little bit closer to you and are thinking about these matters. Oh, spare us, Lord, from treating them without care or lightly because these are the most important truths that a man or a woman can think about. Lord, help us to trust in you, trust in Christ, and have our sins washed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And Naomi, would you come up now, please?
Christ my Savior died Oh, the precious blood Of Christ the crucified It speaks for me before your throne Where I stand justified Thank you, Naomi. Very nice. The precious blood. Pray for services on Sunday. Uh, if you would, please be, uh, be here if you can at 8.30 for our early service. It's always a delight to be together at that early hour to remember our Lord's resurrection. We sing a few extra hymns and really enjoy being together. Some people may come at the 1045 service who haven't come to church in a while or ever before. So let's be on the lookout for them and uh, encourage them and greet them in the name of the risen Savior. You might want to read the crucifixion and resurrection accounts yourself. Tomorrow, maybe, uh, just to ponder them again anew. And until we meet again, what do we do? Well, we do what the disciples did. They saw what had happened the crucifixion, and saw where his body was laid, at least some of them. And then it says in the text of Scripture, they departed. And that's what we'll do tonight. It's time to go home and to ponder, like they did, the meaning of these things. My dear friends, go in peace. And may God make his face to smile upon you. Give you peace, even as he's your ever-satisfying portion. A good Friday night. To you all. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us online as well.